Welcome to the Exchange Church Podcast. Feel free to join us live on Facebook every Sunday at 10 a.m. at facebook.com slash exchangechurch. The following message is brought to you by our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. So good to see you this morning. I'm excited to be here, and I know you're excited to be here. Shane, I can see it on your face. The excitement just beaming and glowing. So good to see you. Those that are watching and online, we're glad, always glad that you're here. Sad that you're not here, but you're here. Uh, so we're glad to be a part of that. Listen, if you haven't done so already, go ahead and check in to Facebook. Uh, you can like it and share it or whatever. Let somebody know. Listen, this is an important series for people to get a hold of and be a part of. We are in part three of a series that is called Irresistible. It's based off of a book, and if you are a reader, I dare you to read this book. It's really a powerful book written by Andy Stanley called Irresistible, and uh, it's just, it's a book that really, really, really uh, just struck a chord in my spirit a few years ago when we read it. Uh, It was a book that confirmed and reconfirmed things that I had been feeling and saying and learning and teaching, but he says it in another way in a platform that's so powerful. So if you missed week one or two, that's okay. Uh, It's on our Facebook. You can go back and rewatch that uh, and get acquainted with it. Week one, we talked about the fact that the temple and, remember this, the temple and kings were never actually God's idea. It was never God's idea to build a temple. It was never God's idea to appoint a king. Now, while God did go along with it, it was never his idea. And though he went along with it, it was always meant to be temporary, okay? It was never meant to be permanent and long-term. It had an expiration date. Week two was really highlighting the brand new agreement that we were giving and given and how it was designed all along from the very onset, it was designed to replace, everybody say replace, replace the old covenant, okay? It wasn't an addendum to or an amendment, it wasn't an add-on, it was to replace the old covenant, which serves for nearly more than half of the context of our Bible. Think about that. So what Jesus came to do was to replace what we would call about half of our, the danger, I know that messes with you a little bit. Not only that, but Pastor Kevin talked about last week the dangers of mixing and matching old covenant with new covenant, and he kind of left us, ended it on a a little bit of a cliffhanger. So I want to remind you as we go through this series that this series is really a roadmap to reclaiming the new that Jesus unleashed for the world. Because the truth of the matter is, and the facts are this, Jesus came and he released something brand new for the world, and throughout history, the church has worked really hard to push the new to the side and bring some of the old back and put it all together. And that's not what Jesus came to do. So anyone remember their first Bible? Anybody? Now, I'm not talking about your first, you know, little kid Bible that you got as a baby, but the first Bible of significance, I brought mine. The covers have fallen off. 
I won't throw it away because it means so much to me. This was given to me. Kevin got one like this. It was given to us for as graduation gifts from the church that we were going to, and they wrote in it, um, Jared, we pray that this Bible will be your sword in battles, your answers in trials, and your comfort in sorrows. God has kept his hand upon you for his purpose. Listen for his still small voice and follow his calling on your life. We are here for you if you ever need us. Uh, our prayer is that God will bless you and keep you always. We love you, bro, Rick and Naomi. Ricky and Naomi, just awesome people. He was our pastor back in the days and uh, uh, since gone on to be with the Lord. Just an awesome, awesome guy. He was also our deputy sheriff and got me out of a lot of trouble. <laughs> so it was nice when your pastor also doubles as the deputy sheriff. Uh, that was helpful, beneficial in those times. But I had, they gave us this Bible. At the time that they gave it to me, I wasn't too interested in it. Uh, but a few years down the road, uh, things really happened in my life, and I became really interested in it. And I have colored and marked this thing up. It has marks all over the place. Um, I've preached many, many, many sermons out of this particular Bible. But I remember when my Bible was given to me, and as a child, I was taught really this. Now, listen to everything before you judge anything. Listen carefully. But I was taught as a kid that this Bible is God's Word, and you are to never put anything above it, right? Anybody taught something similar to that? So that's kind of the way that we grew up. And, and if you grew up in church, you probably were taught something some similar to that. And you believed it, right? I believed it. I believed it wholeheartedly. You believed what they told you about the Bible was true even before you had read the whole Bible. You just believed it, right? And so we grew up kind of believing what they said was true, even though personally I hadn't actually read the whole thing, right? And there's a good chance that some of the people who told you to believe that it was all true probably hadn't read the whole thing for themselves either. Maybe they had, maybe they haven't. Statistically, probably not. Anyway, if you grew up attending a conservative Bible church, like I did, we believe this, and the, the religious community that I came out of, it was a fundamental truth. It was something that we really built a whole religious uh, entity around, that the whole Bible is authoritative, okay? Not, not just part of it, but all 66 books of the Bible are authoritative, okay? Maybe you've heard something similar to that, like I did. Consequently, from day one, unintentionally, many of us were encouraged from that first little statement that, that the whole thing is authoritative, that it is all God's word and we're not to put anything on top of it. We are encouraged to mix and match Old Testament covenants and concepts with values from the new covenant, okay? Unintentionally. It wasn't, it wasn't, I don't think it was anything evil. There was no conniving that was going on, but we were just told this is all authoritative. And so uh, unintentionally, we start mixing and blending these two separate covenant theologies. So it's unlikely that anyone really ever explained to you 
that the Bible, especially probably not as a kid, as adults, you probably know this and have heard this, but the Bible is really organized around a couple of separate covenants with a couple different groups of people and people, peoples and people groups, okay? So the Bible's organized around these covenants, and the odds are, while nobody explained to you why the Old Testament was called old and the New Testament is called new, right? Huh? Everybody wonder that? Uh, the entire book, when I read it, just seemed old. I thought the whole thing was old. And, uh, but you were told, or, or maybe you just figured this out on your own, but the New Testament, as I learned pretty young, was really all about Jesus. And most of my relationship with the Bible begin through the New Testament and my relationship with Jesus. That was my favorite part. Anybody else? That was the best part of the Bible. The best part of the Scripture was when it got to Jesus, okay? That's what I related to. That's what made me feel good was when I started hearing about Jesus. Now, if you were ever encouraged to read the Bible like most good Protestant Christians are, then maybe you took the sound of music approach and you started at the beginning which typically is a good place to start from the beginning, right? And if you did that, you started at the beginning, and it took you a long time before you ever got to Jesus. Anybody? For those of you that all read the Bible all the way through, you know what I'm talking about, right? You, it takes you a long time to get to Jesus. Now, when you finally get to Jesus, it's like you stepped into another world, right? Come on. You, now, I feel like I'm going to talk to the camera here. That way, y'all don't think I'm talking about you. But I feel like you're just giving me blank stares this morning. I'm just talking to the camera people. But the thing about it is, is you read this Old Testament, and you read, 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 and all of a sudden, when you get to Matthew and Jesus becomes introduced to the world, it's like another book. It's a whole other, it's a brand new book. Everything begins, the whole world and dynamic changes. And it seemed like there was something missing from Jesus to the, all that Old Testament stuff, namely about 400 years. About 400 years are missing. The narrative jumps from God setting people on fire while his followers trampled the wicked under the soles of their feet to Christmas time. That's kind of the way the narrative jumps from the old into the new. Now, maybe someone gave you a reading plan or a devotional. Anybody ever have one of those? A, a book that maybe included portions of the Old Testament and portions of the New Testament. So you take a little bit of old and a little bit of new, a little bit of old, a little bit of new. You put it all into a blender and you serve it up as one single dish. You know what I'm talking about? And, and that's the way it was for a lot of people. Most preachers, and, and this is my pet peeve and probably the thing I struggle with most, is listening to preachers that mix and match theologies. It, it hurts my stomach. It is so difficult because they're taking things out of context and mixing it with something that Jesus brought that's so beautiful and awesome, and they're tainting it. And it's difficult to swallow, but the, the reason that I can kind of get nauseous at that is because I did that for a long time. 
I was so good at taking the old covenant because the old covenant has a lot to work with, and you can really, you can really convict people to the core when you start dealing with old covenant commands and law. And with the old covenant commands and law, I could make you feel so disgusted with yourself. And then I mix it with Jesus, the answer. And you all come to the front and you cry and you sob and we fix it till next week. And then I'll find some more old covenant to bring and we'll stir. And that's kind of what what I did and the way I built it. But most Christian reading plans are organized around a, a blended approach. Most Christian books, calendars, greeting cards, and of course, Christian music even. There are songs, and our worship team has gotten frustrated with me at times because there's songs that we've sang that I even have them change a word or two because I'm like, "Mm, that word doesn't work in the new covenant. It doesn't fit. I don't like songs that beg us for the presence of God. I don't like that. I was singing one day, not in this building, in the other, and I looked over at our young people. There were a bunch of young people here, and I looked at my daughter, and she was begging God to come down, and she was doing this, and it hurt my heart. That's not New Covenant. That's not New Covenant. I don't have to beg God to come down from anywhere. You know, we used to beg God to fill our buildings. That's old. That's not New Covenant, and and that I struggled with that. But decades of mixing and matching have left a version of faith, a version of faith filled with leftovers of the covenant that Jesus fulfilled, and we said it a while ago, replaced. He replaced it. Old covenant leftovers explain, this will sound familiar, going through the election process that we just went through. <clears throat> Old Covenant leftovers explain why religious leaders feel that it is their responsibility to rail against the evils of society like the Old Testament prophets. Mm, Shout me down when I'm preaching good. It's why our song lyrics are filled with invitations for God to fill our buildings. Bad church experiences are mostly always related to Old Covenant leftovers. Most bad church experiences are from someone prioritizing a view over you. And Jesus never did that. Jesus never once did that. And Jesus never instructed us to do that. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? And and churches that do that, shame, shame, shame on you, right? And that's been our goal as a church is to not do that because Jesus didn't do that. Self-righteousness and legalism usually stem from an approach to holiness imported from the Old Testament. The prosperity gospel, hallelujah for the prosperity gospel, but it is also rooted in God's covenant with Israel rather than the teachings of Jesus. And the list goes on and on and on and on. The justification that Christians have used since the 4th century to mistreat people find their roots in Old Covenant practices and rituals. Imagine this. Imagine trying to leverage the Sermon on the Mount or just portions 
of the Sermon on the Mount to launch a crusade or incite persecution against or rally against any people group, especially Jewish people. Can't do it. But if you reach back into the old covenant system, there's plenty to work with because they did and you could and it was encouraged and it was acceptable. And a lot of times it had God's label on it. So I want to clear things up. There's not plenty to work with when you reach back into God's covenant with ancient Israel because God's covenant with ancient Israel was flawed. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, it's just the opposite. When understood in its ancient context, God's law law with Israel was brilliant. It was brilliant. The civil law, the religious law detailing God's arrangement with Israel was far more superior in every way than the civil and religious laws of all other surrounding nations. God's law with Israel was brilliant. The Torah, sometimes, if you read through the Torah, it can strike us as barbaric, crazy, unsophisticated. But the protections afforded to the most vulnerable in Israel were nothing short of revolutionary in their original context. Women, servants, foreigners, even children far way, way better under the Jewish law than their counterparts did in the surrounding nations. So the challenges that we face to our propensity to mix and match covenants are not the result of the Mosaic law that God had on Mount Sinai with the children of Israel. It's not the fact that that was being flawed, but our challenge stems from our unwillingness to accept two undeniable historical realities. And I'm going to share these two with you. First, this is so important. God's covenant with ancient Israel, and this is mind-blowing, but it was with ancient Israel. Mic drop. If this mic wasn't so expensive or if we had a lot of money, I would have dropped it. Okay? God's covenant with ancient Israel was with ancient Israel. Isn't that brilliant? Did I just blow your minds? Am I not the greatest pastor? No, I'm just kidding. Somebody will edit that one clip, one clip. The second thing is that God's covenant with ancient Israel was temporary. It was temporary. It was strategic. It was divinely ordained, but it was temporary. In fact, 20 years after the, it was 20 years after the resurrection before Jewish leaders in the church finally figured that out. It took them 20 years to finally publicly acknowledge that Gentiles were not obligated to follow the law of Moses, which makes a lot of sense because Gentiles were not Jewish, right? But still today, we mix them out, and we try to follow. You are not Jewish. You're a Gentile. Never mind. Another sermon, another day. The old covenant was more than a religious framework for the Jews. 
it had been a way of life since childhood. But thanks to the clarity of Paul, the experience of the Apostle Peter, and the leadership of James, the church eventually saw the light. So these early church leaders understood something that honestly I think that we forget or maybe we've just missed entirely. Now, while Jesus merely was foreshadowing the Old Testament, he did not come to extend the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it, wrap it up. That's what Jesus came to do. Now, there's a couple of phrases that are are pretty popular in, in church vernacular. Old Testament, New Testament, right? We've all heard that. But a lot of people don't know where that came from, where we got Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, A lot of people are unaware how the Old Testament got so old and how something written over 2,000 years ago could be referred to as new. Many people assume that the Old Testament is labeled old because the events in the first half of our Bible are a lot older than the events in the second half of our Bible. That's assuming that anybody actually stopped to even think about it in the first place. Now, it's important to point out that Jewish people never, ever thought that their Scripture was old. They didn't refer to it as old anything. The Jewish Scripture, which is what Jesus would have had as his Bible, it would have been his Scripture, uh, the Jewish people never called that old anything. It was called the Law and the Prophets. It was the Jewish scriptures. But we refer to the Old Testament uh, very differently. And the term Bible, it didn't even come about till about 200 years after Jesus' farewell address. Now, I'm giving you a lot of background real fast, a lot of history, but I'm going somewhere. So just be patient with me. The term, <coughs> let me get ready for this. The term testament comes from a Latin term that means covenant. Everybody say covenant. So really, if you think about it, the terms covenant and testament are interchangeable. So instead of testaments, the two sections of our English Bible could actually be labeled or referred to as old covenant and new covenant. Things that make you go, hmm. So there are a couple things that you need to know about the Old Covenant. And I'm talking about, when I say Old Covenant, I'm talking about the covenant that God had between, it It started with God and Moses, it was through Moses, and started on Mount Sinai, but it was between God and Israel, okay? First of all, covenants always had, and you can agree with this, I think, terms and conditions, okay? When you sign up for a a phone plan or buy a car or a house, there's always terms and conditions to that contract, right? So, So covenants, the Old Testament covenants always had terms and conditions. In fact, Moses' covenant, the, the covenant that God had between God and Moses for the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai, it had terms and conditions. And those terms and conditions were etched on stone tablets. Y'all remember that? People call them the, there we go, Ten Commandments. 
And then besides that, there was the oral code that came along with it. There was law after law after law that, that kept kind of getting added to, and a lot of it were all to protect these 10 commandments. So this was a classic, they called it a bilateral Susan Tree Treaty, and that is a covenant between non-equals. I'm going somewhere. This is really important for you to get a hold of because when we finally get a hold of this, it will set you free. So it was between God and the nation. It was a conditional covenant. In other words, it was between God and the nation of Israel. And there were terms and conditions. As long as the nation of Israel obeyed the commands, the the Ten Commandments, the covenants that were set before them, God would protect and prosper the nation. But if the nation of Israel took on other gods and started acting the fool, then God had no obligation to uphold his end of the bargain. That was the terms and the conditions. The other important facet to remember is that the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai was actually a covenant between God and the nation, not God and individuals of that nation. So when God punished the nation, everyone in the nation suffered. When God blessed the nation, the wicked were blessed right alongside of the not-so-wicked because it was a national covenant. When God would look at the nation of Israel and he would judge the health and the devotion of the nation, he did not judge the health and devotion of the nation by the individuals of that nation. He judged the health and devotion by the prophets and by the judges and by the leaders of that nation that were appointed to guide and to teach. The point being, God's conditional promises to Israel were to the nation of Israel, not to individuals of the nation and certainly not to you. So these terms and conditions and the covenant that God set up with Moses was for specifically the nation, not individuals of, just the nation of Israel, and it wasn't for you. You were not, are not, and should thank God Almighty that you are not included in that covenant. Somebody say amen. That covenant was not our covenant. And if you're disappointed because you think I'm taking jabs, I'm not. I'm bringing clarity to what the scripture says. That covenant wasn't our covenant. And thank God that wasn't our covenant. Now, the way that we were presented our Bible as children, and sometimes the way we talk about the Bible, and especially with, with children, is we leave an impression that this is the allscape that this is all God's word for all God's people for all time. That's not true. Hopefully you know better than that, but most people, to be honest, they don't. They've made T-shirts and hats out of the fact that this is the end-all, be-all. Much confusion and some really bad theology stems from our tendency to cherry-pick and edit portions of God's covenant with Israel 
or text referring to God's covenant with Israel. Now, I'm going to ask you this question, and this is honest, honest to God question. How many of you, as, as God-fearing Protestant Christians today, believe that we are, we are not to or should not cherry-pick and pull out scriptures out of context to fit our agenda? Right? We agree with that, that we shouldn't just take a scripture that, that's in the middle of whatever and make it fit. Because honestly, you can find a scripture in here to justify anything. I mean, of course, out of context. <laughs> but you can find a scripture in here to justify anything and everything. Because that's it's you can. But it's out of context. So we all agree as Christians that you should never cherry pick or edit a certain passage out. But we do that as Christians all the time. For example, you walk into any Christian bookstore around graduation time, around April, May, and you will see pictures and frames and and pendants and trophies and books and cards and all this kind of stuff with the phrase with Jeremiah 29.11, right? Anybody ever seen that? I mean, graduation time is Jeremiah 11 time. It is all about Jeremiah 29.11. Jeremiah, anybody know what the verse says? It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. That's great plans. And any graduate would love that scripture to be like tattooed on their chest and postmarked on their forehead where this is so important because God knows the plans he has for me. I can walk into any college or any job and I can succeed and live in prosperity because this is God's word for me. Mm, Or not. But who is the you in that verse? Now, when I preached this a few years ago, someone came up to me after church and said, you ruined my favorite verse. So my intentions are not to ruin anybody's favorite verse because I love Jeremiah 29, 11, but I understand Jeremiah 29, 11. So I'm not trying to ruin it for anybody. In fact, I've got better verses that will replace it later. So, But if you were going to take Jeremiah 29, 11, we all agreed that you can't just take a verse out of the middle of Scripture and just make it applicable to everybody all the time, right? You can't cherry pick and edit. We all agreed to that. I saw almost everybody's hand go up. So if we were to take that verse, we have to take it in context. So to do that, let's just look at the verse in front of it and the verse behind it. See if that gives us perspective on who the you is, because I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, right? So who's the you? Well, glad you asked. This is what the Lord said, which you don't see in the bookstores. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promises and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plan to give you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. If this verse is indeed applicable to all of the graduates at graduation time, they would first have to tarry 70 years. 
So approximately the ripe old age of 88, most graduates could then step into the divine prosperity promised in the passages of Jeremiah 29, 11, and they will be prospered. They will be protected, right? I didn't get, there wasn't a lot of preaching with me because you feel like I, but I'm trying to just bring clarity because if we can't take and cherry pick certain scriptures, then that's one of the ones that's actually not even written to us. It's not even applicable to us. The good thing about it, though, is that we fall under way better promises. So all that about prosper you and not to harm you and, and hope and future, we have all of those same promises times 100, better promises, all wrapped up for us in the new covenant. Somebody say amen, right? So all those promises, what Jeremiah 29, 11 is saying, we have it all. It's just that particular verse actually not written to us. It's not even for us, and that's okay because we have better in the new covenant. The Bible is all God's word to somebody, but it's not all God's word to everybody because that passage is not to me. It wasn't written to me. It's not applicable to me, but thank God that I understand the new covenant because I have those same promises, so I don't even need Jeremiah 29, 11. This should make you very happy because, to be honest, most of you would not have fared very well through adolescence had the old covenant been given equal status with the new covenant. Mm -mm -mm. No amens. That's okay. That's okay. But here's the real kicker. The new covenant that Jesus announced at Passover wasn't only new, it was completely different. It was a completely different kind of covenant than the covenant that God established through Moses on Mount Sinai. That was a bilateral Susan Tree Treaty, okay? The covenant that, that Jesus inaugurated, it was more akin to the covenant that he established with Abraham. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago when he established with Abraham that through you, I am going to develop a nation. And through that nation, through your offspring, the world, the entire world will be blessed. So the, the covenant that Jesus brings in is similar to that covenant. And that covenant is often referred to as a promissory covenant. Okay? Unlike a bilateral Susan Tree Treaty, we referenced earlier, the promissory covenant is unconditional. Everybody say unconditional. Does anybody know what that means? Yeah, without conditions. Y'all are the smartest church I've ever been a part of. It's without conditions. That's the great thing about it being unconditional. There's no terms and conditions. You don't have to mark the box that says you agree to the terms and conditions because there's not any in a promissory covenant. Now, this is really interesting. The root of the Hebrew term covenant means to cut, like you cut a deal, you know, you, you cut a deal, like we would say something like that. That's the, the root term literally meant that. They would actually slice, they would take an animal and slice it into two equal pieces and place it on the altar. And the representative, so if let's just say Scott and I were making a covenant together, we would take uh, a bull, and we would cut it into two pieces, 
and Scott and I would both have to walk in between the two obliterated carcasses, and it would basically, the message would be this, may it be unto me as it is to this unfortunate animal if I violate the terms of this agreement. That's a pretty serious covenant. That's a pretty serious agreement, right? When God ratified his covenant with Abraham, he told Abraham, he said, I want you to slice a cow, I want you to slice a goat, and I want you to slice a ram right down the middle, and I want you to lay them out in covenant-cutting style. In other words, the ceremonial practice of a covenant, I want you to lay them out just like that. So Abraham did that, and he took these three animals, and he cut them in half, laid them out, but God not once, he did not one time ask Abraham to walk through the carcasses. This was a covenant between God and Abraham. And so you're supposed to both walk through the carcasses. God never asked Abraham to walk through the carcass. This is awesome. All of a sudden, a flaming torch appeared and passed through the carcasses. The flaming torch represented the presence of God, and that was enough. That was God's way of saying, Abraham, this one is on me for you. I take full responsibility for fulfilling my covenant promises. Unilateral, unconditional. Unilateral, unconditional. In a promissory covenant, one party makes a pledge to another party, and one party takes full responsibility to fulfill that promise. Now, with all of that as the backdrop, Let's revisit Jesus' reference to the new covenant during his final Passover. On that very night, he would surrender his own body to be flayed to the bone by a Roman cat of nine tails. Minutes later, he would be forced to shoulder a wooden beam that weighed upwards of 100 pounds. Then his hands and feet would literally be torn into two by his own body weight as he hung and he bled to death on a Roman cross. His words, Luke chapter 22. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This was his way of announcing that a new covenant would, would be like nothing ever before. It wasn't the covenant between Moses and God for the nation of Israel. It was a brand new covenant similar to the one he established with Abraham. It was unilateral, and it was unconditional. It was Jesus' way of saying to the world, this one is on me for you. I, I'm going to do it all. I'm going to take all the responsibility, everything, all the weight, all the rules, regulations, terms, conditions, whatever. It's all on me to fulfill for you. So the question really is, when you think about the mixing and matching, and Pastor Kevin was bringing that up last week, why in the world would we reach back beyond the cross and borrow from a covenant that was temporary, a covenant that was inferior 
to the covenant that was established for us at Calvary. As we'll discover later, our tradition of mixed sections of our Bible has created the two covenants that inform the two primary sections of our Bible has created the Achilles heel for the post-Reformation solace scripture version of faith. Now listen, for now it's enough to affirm what I'll reaffirm in our journey together. But Jesus came to do one simple thing, launch something brand new. I can't tell you how many times we've said that in this church. (laughs) It should be like our motto or our theme. Jesus came to launch something brand new. And when he did that, it was so powerful. And as long as we blend the old with the new, then we miss the beauty of the new that Jesus came to establish. The old, though it was awesome and almost perfect in its time and brilliant in its time, when you mix that with the new that Jesus established, it's disastrous. Now, if all of this is new to you and you're wondering if maybe I'm reading a little bit too much into Jesus' words. That's understandable. But Jesus over and over and over hinted to this shift in his ministry. Keep in mind, when Jesus came to this earth, Jesus was the hinge between the old and the new covenant. Jesus was the separation. He was the hinge to make them all work. Jesus played by an old set of rules. He followed the rules, obeyed the rules. He played by their rules while laying the groundwork for the new that was to come. Jesus showed respect and reverence to the old, but it was uncomfortably uncomfortably clear that something new was on the horizon. Jesus affirmed the goodness and the divine origins of the Jewish scripture but he also made claims that set himself above that very scripture. I want to say that one more time. Jesus affirmed the goodness and the divine origins of the Jewish scripture while he made claims. An example of this foreshadowing is found in those very scriptures. One example of this foreshadowing is found in Jesus' most famous sermon, Somebody titled it Sermon on the Mount. But over the course of his three-year ministry, Jesus repeated these same lessons over and over and over and over. Matthew's account, after getting everybody's attention on exactly what it took to be happy, Jesus takes a few minutes and he puts a little bit of spin on several of the covenants that everybody had been obeying or trying to obey or trying to follow for their whole life. In fact, not their whole life, for generation after generation after generation. Here's an example. Jesus said this. Matthew records it, Matthew chapter 538. Now, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, they had heard that. So when Jesus is standing up on the mountain and he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They're like, yeah, you know. They probably continue quoting because they know where he's going. They're like, oh, yeah, I've heard it. We preached it. You know, we live by it. That's our, that's our mantra. <laughs> Actually, the scripture says, 
show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That's what they knew. But instead of explaining that bit of scripture and what it meant, Jesus surprised everybody with a but. Okay? <laughs> now, if he would have paused there, um, then it would have really shocked people, but he throws in this but. Now, you can't but Moses. Okay? Uh, Moses was like God to them. Moses was the man. And, and so Jesus comes along and, and he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but, and when he says that, somebody in the audience had to go, who does he think he is? You can't but Moses. That's, that's terrible. You can't say a but after but what Moses said. Moses commanded this, but he does, because, and he did because he was greater than Moses. Jesus was greater than the temple. Jesus was greater than the Sabbath. He was greater than the law. And so Jesus butted his way right through. Here's what he said. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, you can't even begin to imagine how ridiculous this was to first century Jews who were already struggling with the oppression of the Roman Empire pressing down upon them. But more to the point of our discussion, we can't begin to imagine how unscriptural this sounded to first century Jews whose entire Jewish system and scripture was built on an ethic completely contrary to what Jesus just said. Everything that they believed and taught was contrary to exactly what he just said. You're familiar enough with the Old Testament scriptures to know that Israel never turned the other cheek, okay? They fought. They wanted blood. They wanted more blood. They wanted Roman blood. I mean, Joshua, who is basically the first century Messiah, <coughs> Joshua killed and killed and killed and dominated and took and plundered over and over and over. Then you remember David. <clears throat> David, a mighty warrior, mighty warrior in battle, goes and he kills so many people. He has so much blood on his hands that remember when he brings up building a temple to God, God says, no, you can't do it. You have too much blood on your hand. So Solomon behind you is going to have to do it. So David, he killed so many. So it wasn't, <coughs> it wasn't like they could just turn the other cheek because they didn't. Their whole culture was built on dominance. Jesus' teachings stood in stark contract, contrast to the entire history. Many in his audience wanted more blood on their hands. But he goes on and he adds more to it. He says, You've heard it said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your heavenly Father. So when you go back and you read the Jewish scripture, you won't find hate your enemy explicitly stated in the Jewish scriptures. 
but the sentiment was certainly there. And it was certainly modeled and illustrated throughout Israel's history. Ancient Israel did not love their enemies. Israel took every and kill, wipe out their enemies. Again, against the backdrop of this messianic aspirations, Jesus was actually a poor excuse for a Messiah. They believed the Messiah would come in and bring more blood, and especially Roman blood. Messiah was going to come in and reinforce everything that they had been taught and the way of life that they had lived, and that he would reinforce dominance in the land and bring dominance back to Israel even over the Roman Empire. But instead of fulfilling their messianic expectations, he was actually kind of dissing them. Here's one more for you. Matthew 5, 27, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. Now, at this point, they got to be thinking, whoa, whoa, <laughs> okay. He's gone backwards. So is he going to say that we can commit of adultery? Because some of the some of the people in the audience might have been like, eh, you know, I'm, I'll listen to this one, I guess. But he doesn't. He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This time, Jesus doesn't point his followers. He raises the bar from the actually raises the bar. He raises the bar from what the old covenant Required. Now, as they listened in stunned silence, somebody in his audience must have been wondering, who in the world does this guy think he is? Who does he think he is? And what gives him the right to amend and expand and in some cases even reverse thousands and thousands of years of teaching and tradition? Fortunately, Jesus anticipated that question, and he had actually already kind of answered it and gave him a heads up on his attentions when he said this in Matthew 5, 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, which is, remember what they called their scripture. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he says, don't think that I've come to get, get rid of your scriptures. Okay, all the scriptures that you've learned and that you've read, I've not come to just get rid of them and just chunk them out, throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's not, but I've come to fulfill them, okay? Now, it's important to understand what that actually means. What does it mean when he says to fulfill them? I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And the answer to that question has very significant implications on how we read and understand the Old Testament. The Greek term that he used here for fulfill is actually translated to bring to a designated end. Jesus is saying this. He's saying, I, I didn't come to abolish or to destroy or to destroy the validity of or undermine the credibility of the Jewish scriptures. That's not what I've come to do. I didn't come to undermine thousands of years of tradition and teachings. He says, but what I did come to do is bring it to an end. Bring it to a designated <laughs> end. In other words, if the law was homework, Jesus had just completed it. If the law was a speech, Jesus was concluding it. If the law was a plane, he was landing it. This was his way of saying, 
God's conditional temporary covenant with Israel was coming to an end. Does that make sense? It was the beginning end. Does that make sense? It was always supposed to come to an end. We said this a couple of weeks ago. Matthew writes that when the set time had finally come, that was the set time. That, that was, that was always the plan from the very beginning that it was eventually supposed to come to an end. The temple was always supposed to be temporary. Wasn't even God's idea, but he just let them have it. Kings were supposed to come to, it wasn't God's idea, but he just kind of let them go with it. But it all had an expiration date. When God established his covenant with Israel, he set a timer. And according to Jesus, the timer had just gone off. He says, I didn't come to just throw out all the scriptures and say, just, I'm done with it. I came and lived by it. I came and lived by it. But what I did was I came to finish it, okay? It's done. It's done. So when I say terms like this is all God's word for somebody, but not all God's word to everybody, what I'm saying is there's things in there that were never meant. Jesus put an end to it. He put an end to it. In other words, he closed the book and said, this is not applicable to you. I came to bring something brand new. And so over the next 40 years, religious Israel would wrestle with the internal tension created by this Jesus movement. The way is what they called it. The harder they tried to shut it down, the faster it grew. And thanks to the tireless efforts of the Apostle Paul and the other Jews throughout the Roman Empire, the world slowly started abandoning these religious teachings of the law, and they started following the teachings given to them by this resurrected teacher from Nazareth, this resurrected Nazarene rabbi. They started listening and following, and something extraordinary happened on August the 6th, 70 A.D., I think August the 6th should be a religious holiday. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write uh, Congress and ask them if it could be a religious holiday. Because this is one of the most significant dates in our history. Something extraordinary happened on August the 6th. The transition came to an abrupt end. It was on that day that the four-year conflict between the Jewish rebels and Rome came to a bloody and violent conclusion. The Jewish temple was looted. It was burned and completely destroyed. Every stone destroyed. The destruction of the temple signaled the end of ancient Judaism. Judaism as prescribed by Moses on Mount Sinai August the 6th, 70 A.D., ceased to exist. It stopped existing. I don't know how to explain ceased to exist much more than it did not exist any longer. It stopped. It came to an absolute end. The documents and all the things that it would require for them to continue to live the priestly duties and all the laws that they'd had destroyed. There was no way for them to go back to operating as a religious system the way they'd always operated. It was over. 
When Jesus announced the inauguration of his new covenant, it marked the beginning of the end of the old one. While his short ministry served as the transition between the two, it was clear that he never intended for his followers to blend the two. That was always a no-no. Jesus left zero, nada, zilch room for a blended model of covenants. Jesus made it crystal clear that the old was being fulfilled. It was being brought to a designated end, and he was establishing something brand new. Not only had he explained it several times before his death, but he restated it in his final farewell address. When you read this, a lot of times you listen, but I want you this time to read it, and I want you to count the number of references that Jesus makes to Moses or the amount of references Jesus makes to the law or to the old covenant, because this is what we refer to as the great commission. Jesus says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to who? Me. He didn't say had been given to Moses. He says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So with that authority, I'm making a statement here. Therefore, go and make disciples of who? All nations. All, all nations, every single one of them, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and of the Holy Bible and of Moses. That's not what it says. Teaching them to obey everything that Moses. No, he says teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. And, as, and surely I he didn't say Moses, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Think about this. Jesus claimed, and now I'm a Jesus follower. Anybody else in here a Jesus follower? I'm a Jesus follower. I am a Jesus follower. Jesus claimed all authority, and if someone has all authority, they are the only authority to which anyone needs to appeal. Man, that was a great shouting moment. I put right here, people are going to stand on their feet and start throwing Kleenexes at me. I'm going to say this one more time, and you can kind of muddle a shout or go, mm, or whatever. But think about it. If Jesus claimed all authority, if someone has all authority, they are the only authority to which anyone has to appeal. Right? That's it. Jesus claimed all authority. It was as if he was saying, listen, the days of Moses, they were great. Moses brought you, he brought your ancestors out of captivity, and it was powerful, and God did some great, amazing things through Moses, and then through Joshua, and, and through the generations, and through Saul, and David, and Solomon, there were, there were some moments of, of greatness in your history, but the days of Moses, they're gone. I have been given here, and all authority under heaven and earth, it's been given to me. So I'm telling you what to do with it. 
I'm telling you what to do. You need to go out and you need to reach every single nation. You need to present to them the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You need to go, and, and, and when you do that, you need to know this, that I am, am with you the entire way, every journey you go on. So think about it. It's been nearly 2,000 years since the new covenant was unleashed for the world and announced. But for some reason, and this is the thing that breaks my heart the most, I struggle with this, even with guys that I work with, talking to people I meet all the time, and, and especially when they find out I'm a pastor, they want to start talking religion, and I'm like, oh, don't, don't, don't. You don't want to hear what I got to say. But they start mixing and matching. And it's so sad that the church still struggles with letting the old go so that they can fully embrace the new. The church has a, a love affair with the old covenant. And I'm not saying any one particular church. I'm just saying religion as a whole has such a love affair with the old covenant that we try so hard to hang on to when what Jesus came to do was to bring it to a designated end and say, it was good. It was good end. So when I read the Old Testament, I don't just throw it out. People have asked me, so you're saying you don't read the whole Bible? I, I love the Bible. I love the whole thing. But I read the Old Testament as history and context and pointing towards Jesus, the Messiah. But I read the New Testament for my application. The New, the new was given to me. He wrote, and even not all the New was written to me, but it was written for me. He was laying out a plan that would go on throughout the ages of history. Jeremiah 29, 11, awesome, awesome verse. Unfortunately, it just wasn't my verse. It's not yours either. Failing to let the old covenant go, we fail to embrace the terms and conditions associated with what Jesus brought with the new covenant. Oh, what do you mean, Pastor Jared? I didn't think there were terms and conditions. I thought it was all on Jesus, the promissory covenant. It was all on him. Well, I did say earlier that all covenants have terms and conditions. So even the new covenant has terms and conditions. But our primary failure to embrace the new covenant and continue to mix and match a blended version is what's made the church so resistible. That's why you talk to people Y'all do it all the time. You talk to people, and they say this all the time. Yeah, I used to go to church. Have you? Right? Have you ever talked to somebody and say, oh, I used to go to church? Or they say, I grew up in church. You know how many people I talk to, and they say, oh, my dad used to be a pastor. Or my mom used to teach Sunday school, whatever. And, and it's always past, and, and you start talking to them more. They're no longer in that position. They're no longer a part of church. They're not connected with church. Just something happened. And if you ask them what happened, I would almost guarantee you nine times out of ten, you can relate it to a mixture of blending the old and the new. Of you over you. They missed the mark. So to be honest with you, there are terms and conditions. And they're really, it's 
really, really important that you know what they are. And that's why next week we're going to discuss what the terms and conditions are to the new covenant. Because it's great. You're going to love it. But there is a condition and a term that you have to come to face with. And I think I've faced this more than anything because it's so simple. The new covenant terms and conditions are so simple. It's ridiculous. It's so plain and clear. See, if we were to mix the old and the new, then we need to take the 613 laws and then we need to add the other 300 or 500 plus laws on top of that and we need to obey all them and then we need to add this new term and condition to it. Man, that's impossible. It was impossible already for people to live up to the law. That's why Jesus says, listen, if you're going to follow the law, then you need to do it better than the Pharisees because what he was basically saying is you can't. It's impossible. It's impossible for you to ever live up to the law. You can't do it. But Jesus brings a new covenant, and then he says, now I'm going to give you the terms and conditions. And he makes it so easy, but yet it's so hard. We struggle with it so often. We're going to talk about that next week. Father, I thank you so much, God, for the fact that you are simply irresistible. God, that there's no one, no thing that can ever be placed above you. God, I thank you for the scriptures. I thank you so much that I have the opportunity, one, to live in America and have the freedom that I can carry around my Bible anytime, anywhere. I love that I have the freedom to go and look and study the history of time, life. I can see the prophecies as signs begin to point to your arrival. But Jesus, the greatest thing, the greatest thing that I've ever read in my scripture is the day that you came onto this earth. To bring to an end something that was so twisted and getting so backwards, knowing that in 2021 here in Houston, God, that we could never live that life. But you so perfectly orchestrated and inaugurated something new. God, and I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if everybody understood what that new was, you would be irresistible again. That's our mission in life. That's our mission as a church, is to make you irresistible again. We thank you for that, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said a big amen. Amen.